You're listening to Invisible, female artists in early modern England, an audio investigation into the art of the 17th and 18th centuries. Part 4. Observations. Mary Beale and the Professional Artist. Observations by M.B. is the first known instructive manual describing the act of painting written by a woman in the English language. Written on August 14, 1663, the manuscript by Mary Beale was never published. It appeared at the end of her husband's, Charles Beale, book on painting instruction. Mary and Charles had a unique working relationship, collaborating in marriage, friendship, and business. In a little over 200 words, Mary reveals her intentions as a painter. By the time this work was written, Mary was a practicing artist, but it wouldn't be until 1670, by this time age 38, that Mary's artistic talents would support her family. Charles Beale eventually became Mary's studio manager. Mary was one of the most prolific and successful of a small number of female artists working in the 17th century. Her life and work is well documented in part from the surviving notebooks from Charles recording commissions, payments, and practices. Her success is due to a number of factors. The help she received from her husband and father, the protection and support from a wide circle of friends, and the assistance of the court painter Sir Peter Lely. Her own determination to flourish cannot be undercut. Mary believed in her abilities and made her more than an amateur painter. Mary Craddock was born in Barrow, Suffolk in 1633. She's the eldest child of John Craddock, rector of Barrow, and Dorothy Brenton. Mary was baptized on the 26th of March, 1652. Mary's mother passed away when she was 10, and little is known of Mary's early life, but her aptitude for learning suggests she benefited from a humanist education. Her father was most likely her teacher, and as he was a member of the Painter Stainers Guild and an amateur artist, he also certainly gave her instruction in drawing and painting. Francis would not have considered that his daughter would pursue a career in fine art, because he bequeathed all of his supplies to his nephew. Mary Craddock married Charles Beale in 1652, and the couple soon moved to Covent Garden to join a community of aristocrats, painters, framers, and colormen, which acted as a center of art, and provided opportunities for patronage. In Charles' notebooks, he records that Mary had appeared in the list of female painters included by Sir William Sanderson in Graphis, or The Most Excellent Art of Painting. Also included in the passage is Joan Carlyle one of the few known female professional painters. And in oil colours, we have a virtuous example in that worthy artist Miss Carlyle, and of the others, Miss Beale, Miss Bruman, and Miss Wimes. Outside of Joan Carlyle, the other women on this list remain unidentified. Mary concentrated on self-portraits and images of family and friends, painted to be given out as gifts and out of admiration versus being solely for profit. 
1670, Mary opened a professional studio in Pall Mall, yards from the royal court at St. James's Palace. In the beginning, she struggled to produce enough work as a single practitioner to compete with the studios of her male counterparts, who had multiple apprentices and assistants. Mary relied greatly on the support from her husband. Just like male artists who depended on their wives to help in the workshops, keep their homes, and care for their children, Charles Beale assisted Mary in these duties so she could excel as a professional painter. Mary did take on two pupils in 1681 and later tutored Sarah Curtis. So the earliest reference to individual images painted by Mary appear in the journals of Samuel Woodford in 1664 and 1665. The earliest work that is attributed to her is self-portrait with husband and son from 1660. In this work, Charles and their son Bartholomew sit in a traditional portrait composition. The figures of Charles and Bartholomew are turned in to face each other. Bartholomew holds the left hand of his father, while Charles places his free right hand on the shoulder of his son. Mary sits off to the left, slightly removed from the two figures. She gently raises her right hand. Most striking is that Mary stares directly out of the portrait, making eye contact with the viewer, instead of being turned in towards the figures of her family. The composition from this portrait is similar to works painted by other great artists at this time. Rembrandt's self-portraits have become famous for the forward-facing gaze. He seems to be staring out at the viewer with such intensity, almost as if he can see you looking at him. This portrait of Mary and her writings and observation are no different. The manuscript carries an air of intent and authority, written for an unknown future audience. Though she remains humble in her prowess, Mary speaks from her own painterly experience. Observations, which I understand, appears to be a simple passage on the methods of painting fruit, is rather boring, and it isn't a bombshell revelation on what motivated her to paint, or how she as a woman in this period became a professional and interacted with fellow artists. The fact that this account exists shows that she valued the result of her own experimentation enough to write it down under the assumption it would be read possibly in the future as a guide to others. It should be viewed as a statement of intent, encoded in simple mechanics of painting apricots. Observations by M.B. in her Paintings of Apricots in August 1663 Your dead colour being perfectly dry, temper your several sorts of mascots with nut oil and let them lie for half an hour, and when you are ready to use them, tempt them again. This giveth a fatness to your colour, which is of great advantage in your covering. For the greenish colour, mingle white lead, middle mascot, ochre, pink, and a very little fair ultramarine together. Without the ochre, the colour will be raw and fierce. In the pale yellow places, leave out the ultramarine altogether. Where it inclineth more to redness, let the composition be white lead, red lead, red mascot, and a little pink. Mary's success as a professional is dependent on more than just her talent alone. Joan Carlyle was no less talented than Mary, but she didn't fare anywhere near as well. A small number of Carlyle's works remain, including two group portraits, Stag Hunt and Elizabeth Murray, Countess of Dysart. 
1654, Joan and her husband moved to Covent Garden, like Mary and Charles, so that Joan may pursue a career as a professional painter and amass a fortune for their children. Within two years, the family had moved back to Richmond, having been unable to fulfill their hopes. So why did one woman fail while another succeeded? Part of the reason why Mary prospered was prior to entering the public sphere as a professional artist, she and her husband had prepared society to accept her work by fortifying a personal reputation as a virtuous gentlewoman and an accomplished amateur. They used their social connections from within their group of friends to build a persona for Mary and create avenues of patronage. The Beals had to craft a respectable air around Mary and her business so as not to attract negative opinions. In the early 1660s, as Mary practiced an amateur portrait artist, she created art out of love and art act as gifts rather than a source of income. But that changed when she became an overtly professional artist, painting people with whom she may not have been acquainted and exchanging her work for money. Having an endless stream of strangers visiting one's home and especially inviting male strangers in for commercial purposes could easily have been misconstrued. It was through very careful selective calculations collaborations that Mary and her inner circle were able to craft a brand for her business, allowing her to be seen as a person of quality. Those who came to sit for her would also be extended such a reputation, being seen as guests rather than paying customers. The Beals capitalized on the court culture of gift exchange. Inscribed portraits and text were often given as gestures of affection or could be used as payment for favors and loans. The couple established a pattern of giving such items, which allowed them to transition to the selling of portraits, making it an acceptable extension of the existing social currency at the time. For aspiring people, it was vitally important to cultivate familial connections and create new alliances as a means of securing patronage. It was essential for a person to demonstrate their trustworthiness, allowing them to participate in the exchange of credit and commitment that the early modern economy was based. One's reputation was synonymous with soundness, both social and commercial, and was crucial to the survival of individuals and households, both high and low. Among the larger community of artists, framers, and colormen, the couple was surrounded by in Covent Garden. They had a modest connection to the aristocracy, clergy, and civil service, and gathered around them a diverse mix of acquaintances that included many prominent Anglican clergymen, like Dr. Robert Wilde, the satirical poet Thomas Flatman, miniaturist and lawyer Mr. Carter, the artist colorman Robert Boyle, founding member of the Royal Society under Secretary John Cook of Whitehall, the King's painting restorer Perry Walton, and Richard Gibson, a dwarf miniaturist employed at the court. It's not known how the Beals became acquainted with Sir Peter Lely, but in 1672 Charles had recorded that Lely had visited Mary in her studio and praised her work. Later, he would lend her paintings from his collection to copy, and even invited Mary to watch him work in order to study his techniques. Mary also built up a lucrative business making copies of Lely's portraits, as well as using his poses in her own composition. Her financial successes are carefully noted in Charles's writing, which rose from £202 in 1672 to a peak of £429 for 83 commissions in 1677. The working friendship with Sir Peter Lely would extend for many years, with the exchange of portraits, some featuring the Beale children, and even included Charles making and supplying colors to Peter, as noted in the pocketbook from 1674. 
Although the original book is now lost, the 18th century commentator George Wirtu created notes from it which are now in the hands of the British Library. In 1674, in August, Mr. Lely had one ounce of ultramarine, the richest at £4.10 an ounce. In part of payments betwixt us for Dean of Canterbury, Tilston, Dr. Ed Stillingfleet, which he has done for me, and by lakes and ultramarines, according to account of particulars in 1673. So there is due to him £1.01 in full payment for the two forementioned pictures. The Beale's activities are what we would now call networking, and the relationships they formed were used to achieve measures of security, exchange guidance and support, and to enhance their status by creating links with figures of authority. The connections they formed turned their practice into a center of friendship and patronage. Mary could work because she was free from the fears of impropriety. We know this much about Mary because she was so prolific, signing her paintings and wrote so many things down. Charles left more than 30 notebooks detailing the life of Mary's studio, and Samuel Woodford's diaries narrated her early sittings. No contemporary criticism of her work has ever come to light. Forty years after Mary's death, George Wirtu began researching the history of British art. In his writings, he noted that Miss Mary Beale painted in oil very well, and worked with a wonderful body of colors, but expresses no concern over the role reversal in her public and private life, making her the breadwinner for her family. Mary died in 1699 and was buried at St. James's in London. Though the Beals exhibited unconventional behavior, which often countered religious and social directions at the time, her well-crafted reputation as being virtuous, generous, and a gentlewoman allowed her professional aspirations to not be seen as subversive, and was taken for granted. One of the last self-portraits created by Mary is from 1681. She depicts herself as a middle-aged woman, again meeting the viewer's gaze, this time with a calm and curious look. Her left hand rests on the back of a spaniel puppy standing on its hind legs, its front paws resting on Mary's knee. This is a portrait of a woman of substance, one with herself and her achievements, Eighteen years after writing Observations, she no longer feels the need to declare her intent to the world. This is the last glimpse of Mary Beale before history took over the telling of her story. This has been part four of Invisible, Female Artists in Early Modern England. For image references and all sources from this episode, please check out the show notes. Next from Invisible, part five, The Canon, Brief Histories of Notable Women.